Okay, we're very happy to have with us today uh, Chris Nielsen, uh, talking on China's air quality and climate change. When we think of all the problems that we have with China now, uh, one of the most hopeful where we might have some cooperation is in the environment. And we have a project at Harvard uh, that's directed by Chris Nielsen has been going uh, for many, many years. I first uh, knew uh, Chris uh, uh, over 20 years ago when we uh, took a trip together on China. We ran a project called Living with China. And uh, Chris uh, and Mike McElroy, the professor uh, here, uh, were working together. Chris's background, he started out in geology. He's a Colorado boy. He spent some time uh, in Taiwan where he was uh, running the Colorado office and uh, sort of picked up China and is a real scientist, uh, did graduate work at MIT. And so for over 20 years, they've been running a project. Uh, he and Mike have been running a project uh, working with China on uh, air quality from all the scientific point of view. And they've kept going despite all the kind of problems we've had with China. So without further ado, I want to uh, introduce Chris except for one thing I want to have Nick, first of all, Nick Drake, uh, tell us about how he's going to run the um, questions at the end of the thing, and then we'll turn it over uh, to Chris. Chris, it's all yours. Thanks so okay. much for doing this. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ezra, for the introduction and, uh, and also the original invitation. <clears throat> As everybody says in these talks uh, and means it, it is certainly a privilege uh, to be invited to give a, a talk in in uh, a Fairbanks Center series, and particularly somebody like me from from the, from the Harvard uh, School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, it's also a, a valuable opportunity uh, in another sense. And I want to take a few minutes to um, explain what I mean by this because it's going to uh, explain my subtitle there and also sort of uh, set the terms of this talk that I want to give. So I'm probably not the only person participating in this uh, seminar today who thinks that um, folks from the sciences and, and folks from the social sciences don't interact enough or uh, interact necessarily very well, given the number of um, uh, important issues that sit at the intersection of science and society. And of course, we're living a gigantic one today with the pandemic. Um, but environmental challenges are textbook examples of these, um, both the air pollution uh, problems I'm going to talk about and also climate change, certainly climate change. So I've been involved in a number of these kinds of uh, uh, events to bridge from the sciences and social sciences, either as a speaker, but also often as an organizer. And one thing I've noticed is, is how the scientists approach the problem, uh, approach the presentation is that what they tend to do is they sort of think about what they're working on, what sort of research topics they're working on that they're very excited about, that they think non-scientists may also be uh, excited about. And so they develop a presentation that is based on, on that, like telling them about some of, their, some of their most recent research. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not trying to diminish it at all. Um, I think it's helpful for people outside of the sciences to hear about where, um, you know, where the sciences are going in specific areas. 
But I also think there's some limitations to that because doing that does not generally give a more holistic view of uh, environmental problems and, 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 in fact, what the science can and cannot tell us about them. Specifically, what scientists don't do, and it's quite understandable that they don't do this, but they don't do it very much, is talk about what they don't know. And when I say what they don't know, I mean what science doesn't know about these problems. And I have gotten concerned that um, that that has a sort of an inadvertent effect of encouraging people to think that the problems are less difficult than they actually are, and that we have a better handle on them than we than we in fact do. And um, you know, when you're thinking about uh, societal responses to environmental challenges in China or elsewhere, I want to suggest that. What we don't know sometimes is just as important as what we do know. And I'm going to try to make that case to you. So people currently are sort of overdoing the, um, the uh, parallels to the pandemic, but I think this is actually uh, apt here. You know, I myself made this mistake about the pandemic. Um, I was overconfident that the American medical science and the, you know, the, would, had a better handle on novel viruses and on virus control. And I was very confident about the CDC's capabilities of managing um, a problem like this than uh, I probably should have had. And it's interesting about probably 10 days ago, or I'm sorry, 10 weeks ago, um, I had a couple of the young researchers in our project from China come to me and they were kind of skittish about how the U.S. was, you know, responding to this terrible uh, epidemic. And, and I very confidently, you know, tried to reassure them. I said, well, you know, the American science is actually really good on this kind of stuff. And the CDC is very, very strong. And while it's a very serious problem, you can trust that, you know, the U.S. is going to have a good, uh, is going to manage this quite well. So don't worry so much. And in the end, you know, I was wrong, and they were, <laughs> they were right to be skittish. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on in terms of the U.S. response, but certainly it is a challenge. You have to say that uh, what we're doing is not only trying to understand this problem, but solve it at the same time. So anyway, I want to use my presentation not to talk about the latest results from our project, uh, I'm willing to give a taste of that. If anybody's interested in the Q&A, I can tell you about a few things if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're curious. Um, instead, I want to take my shot at um, this other task of bridging, uh, in, a, in a larger sense, between the sciences and, and, and social sciences about what we do and don't know about these problems as they relate to, to China. Okay, and so the way I'm going to do that, this is my very uh, quick and dirty overview. I'm just going to give you a, a fast five-minute uh, introduction to what the China Project is. Ezra mentioned it a little bit, but let me flesh it out so you know where I'm coming from. Then I'm going to talk about air pollution in some detail, probably for some of your tastes. <laughs> but uh, to illustrate my, my, my point, that's going to be a story that stands on its own. I think you'll have an interesting takeaway. Um, and, uh, and then I'm, but it also is going to cue up what I want to say about climate change. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about climate change specifically, but I'm going to talk about it in more conceptual terms, kind of intuitive terms in comparison to the air pollution problem. And the way I want to relate that ultimately uh, to China is to 
uh, connect it to U.S.-Chinese relations. And talking about U.S.-Chinese relations, I have to, I'm sticking my neck out. I'm certainly no expert on U.S.-Chinese relations. <clears throat> and I know a lot of folks involved in the Fairbanks Center community are. So I'm doing this, you know, humbly. I want to put forth something uh, about U.S.-Chinese relations that I think, uh, again, is, is, is going to be fresh. It's something different than you've probably heard before for your reactions uh, and, and comments, including from uh, Ezra and from Bill Overholt, I'm looking forward to, but all of you, um, so that I have, uh, I learned something from this uh, uh, event today also. So the overview of the China project, there's really uh, kind of two um, defining characteristics that you should know. It is first an interdisciplinary program. This states back to our founding under the University Center for Environment at Harvard, which is a university-wide center. And we kept this interdisciplinary scope when we um, spun off to the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. So the, uh, there's, other, there's faculty in other schools of uh, Harvard that are, are leading research in our project. The second defining characteristic is also about collaborations, collaboration with Chinese partners. I think Ezra mentioned this. <clears throat> We've had, uh, we, we take this very seriously and have from the very beginning. Uh, we have very strong ties to Tsinghua University. We're currently working with five different schools uh, and departments, but we work with a lot of other uh, universities, strong ties to Nanjing University and uh, Huazhong, but uh, we have individual research collaborators in a lot of other places. And for the most part, these people, um, are alumni of our project. So they spent time at Harvard, and that means, you know, we know them very well, they're friends, and the collaborations actually run quite smoothly because, um, because we're, uh, we're so familiar with everybody. So now I'm gonna talk you through the research areas that we work on. I'm, I'm not gonna say very much. I'm basically gonna list them. There's some pretty pictures on the left. You don't need to study those or try and understand them necessarily. They're just to give you a flavor of what we do. So we're based in the, um, in the very large atmospheric chemistry uh, community at Harvard. And so we do the basic chemistry of both air pollutants and, and greenhouse gases. We model them, that's a big part of the research, and we do observations. We operate with our partners at Tsinghua, two stations uh, uh, measuring both air pollutants and greenhouse gases. We work on emissions. You should think of emissions as the sort of ground level um, activities that put pollutants or greenhouse gases into the air. This is not about atmospheric processes. This is about combustion technologies. It's about agricultural processes, um, natural processes. We work on renewable energy potentials. The potentials refers to the geophysical potentials, the technological potentials, the economic potentials of renewable energy. This is research that is led by Professor Mike McElroy, the chairman of the project, Ezra mentioned him. Um, as he also leads the atmospheric part. Um, and when you're interested in renewable energy, you inevitably get very interested in power systems because you have to figure out how to balance the variability, the intermittency of renewable power. So we have electrical engineers involved in our project uh, that lead this work on power systems. And then we do a little work on climate change impacts on both renewable energy and air quality. We also have a strong economics team. This is led by Professor Dale Jorgensen in the economics department and uh, his colleague and my close collaborator, Mun Ho. They do a lot of different things, but the main tool is a CGE economic model of China that we use for policy simulations and other things. And then from the beginning, we've had environmental health uh, participants in the project from the school public health, again, doing a variety of things, but think of it as the health impacts of air pollution. 
exposures and urban transportation and planning. This also goes back on a, on a modest basis to the beginning of our project, but has really heated up in the last few years uh, with greater participation from the Graduate School of Design. So before I go on, I wanna say uh, just something about myself. Um, as I'm the executive director of this program, so I have administrative responsibilities, but my job is defined as 50% research. And I'm sort of the in-house interdisciplinarian. I participate and contribute to research and papers in almost all these areas. By the way, we publish about 30 peer-reviewed articles a year currently in our project across all these fields. Um, so you should think of me as somebody who knows a good amount about a lot of things, but I'm not really expert in any of them. And, uh, and I think that has some disadvantages, but it also has some very interesting advantages. It's, it's fun, I have to say, but... Uh, it has some advantages in that it gives me some distance from the disciplinary biases. And sometimes I kind of see things or say things in somewhat different uh, way than uh, my disciplinary colleagues would. And I'm going to illustrate that with my first slide on the uh, air pollution part of the talk. So I'm going to cut straight to the punchline and say something that I don't think my atmospheric science colleagues would say. Scientists know a lot less about China's air pollution than you think. It is the subject of very active scientific debate. Um, if you look at the leading atmospheric science journals, uh, there's a lot of papers being published about China's air pollution, all its complexities. You might ask, how could this be after so much attention, so much research? The atmosphere is a highly complex and uh, chemical and physical system that varies enormously over space and time. I'm going to, um, uh, the next four or five slides are actually going to flesh this out. Uh, and individual pollutants can themselves be very, very complex. So first of all, notice there's a lot of different air pollutants. Okay. When you're talking about air pollution in China, you could be talking about a lot of different things. I'm actually only going to talk about one pollutant form. That's PM 2.5. Um, most of you have probably heard about PM 2.5. It entered the popular lexicon in China after the famous air pollution episode in, in, in January of 2013 that a lot of people called the apocalypse, and there was a lot of reaction to that. PM 2.5 uh, refers to, to fine particles. You can see the size on the, on the left in the image there. Here's the complication number one for, for people, uh, non-scientists, to understand about PM 2.5 that you probably don't know. PM 2.5 is not a pollutant. Um, it is an entire class of pollutants. You shouldn't think of it as a pollutant. So let me, uh, let me explain what I mean by this. PM 2.5, the, the term stands for particle matter 2.5. It describes three and only three things. The form of the pollutant, that is a particle, which means solid, liquid, or a combination of the two. The size, and that it's suspended in the air. Something really important is missing from this description, and that's the chemistry. It can have any chemical composition whatsoever, that if it, as long as it takes that form of those, uh, meets those three criteria, it's, uh, it can be, it's a particle of PM 2.5. And in fact, single particles can have mixed chemistry. So I don't know if you can tell where I'm going with this, but let me give you some data from uh, a study that was, <clears throat> that was uh, published about that apocalypse episode. It's, it's characterizing the chemical composition of the PM 2.5 in the, these four cities of China over a 20 year period. 
I'm not asking you to um, actually figure out which colors mean what. I just want you to notice that there's a lot of colors on these. Each one of those colors represents, in a sense, a different pollutant that takes the PM 2.5 form. And in fact, the green part is, is, is kind of a, a, a catch term for a whole bunch of other um, organic pollutants. So in fact, that would be subdivided and do many, 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 many more um, uh, ke uh, chemical forms. So complication number two about PM 2.5 that I think a lot of non-specialists don't realize is that a lot of PM 2.5 is not emitted as, 2 point, uh, as PM 2.5. It is formed chemically in the air from precursor gases. This is called secondary PM 2.5. I list a few uh, of them there for in case anybody's interested. This secondary chemistry can be very complex and it's not necessarily linear. So again, going back to this uh, uh, image, uh, the same figure that I showed you before, these are actually different pie charts. This is doing what is called a source apportionment of that PM 2.5. You're thinking about how do you control pollution? You, you wanna know what the sources are. And so based on the chemistry, these researchers are able to determine, chemistry and maybe some other tools, are able to determine the sources of some of the PM 2.5. You can see uh, in the blue is coal burning and so forth. But also notice that anywhere from 30% in Xi'an to 75% of the PM 2.5 in Shanghai and, and Guangzhou is secondary. That's not a source. It's describing it as secondary because it's very difficult to say where the secondary pollutants come from because they're formed from different precursor gases that come from different sources and that chemistry is very complex. Complication number three about uh, PM 2.5 is that the meteorology plays a huge role. And a lot of you realize that wind is very important for uh, pollution episodes, and that's certainly true. You probably don't realize that uh, vertical, or you may not realize that vertical transport is actually really important too. And I have a diagram here that I borrowed from a paper that's really about a different topic, and I, and I want to use it just to illustrate two things. Um, First of all, notice these white arrows that uh, show the vertical uh, circulation. And then notice this thing that says PBL top. That is, uh, that is describing the top of the planetary boundary layer. Um, and that defines, it's, it's thermally determined, and that defines how much of the atmosphere is this pollution going to circulate in. Um, and what's all, all, I, all I want you to understand is that this changes all the time. It can be low and it can be high. And it tends to be low in wintertime and at nighttime. It, it has to do with the solar incidence. And if it's low, you have less fresh air to diffuse your pollutants in and it, it makes for a, a, a haze episode. This is one of the primary reasons why China has very severe pollution in the wintertime. It's not necessarily about the emissions that come from heating or something like that. It's about the structure of the atmosphere that really uh, compounds this problem. Okay, so meteorology has a lot of other effects. Precipitation, obviously. Uh, temperature and relative humidity have a big effect on the chemistry that produces fine particles. As you know from weather, it's constantly changing over time, hours, days, and seasons. Complication number four, which is related to number three, is that climate change is affecting the meteorology at, lo at longer timescales. 
over decades, even year to year. What we know about what happened in 2013 in the so-called apocalypse, uh, you know, about meteorology may not quite apply to the prevailing conditions in 2021, this upcoming winter, because the climate is changing while we're trying to understand these problems. Complication number five is that geography and topography are important. You probably have a sense of this. Uh, uh, geography, for instance, mountains help to track uh, trap pollutants, topography, proximity to oceans uh, can help pollution because it's a source of fresh air. Um, I only have a couple more complications. Don't worry. I'm, uh, I know I'm probably <laughs> overwhelming you a little bit. Complication number six is that observation is very limited. A lot of people think it's, oh, it's easy to measure air pollutants. It's relatively easy to measure air pollutants at the surface. So, but those instruments also have uncertainties. And if you're doing something like the chemical analysis that I was talking about a few slides ago, that's a very involved analytical um, measurement process. But more importantly, what you're really interested in is this massive three-dimensional space. And you need to, to understand the problem, to understand what is giving rise to a haze episode, you need to, you need to know what's going up going on up in the atmosphere. And so we have some tools to do that. You have towers, you have satellites that can look down, you actually send instruments up on balloons. Um, and those are all very helpful. Those are critical sources of information. But in fact, they're only giving you snapshots in time and space about the problem. And so you have to understand that you're, you're, you're really limited in how much you can characterize what is actually happening in a haze uh, episode and what the pollutants in, in fact are. Complication number seven is that the emissions are not necessarily easy to quantify. And you might be surprised. This is some uh, results from uh, actually from some China project papers uh, from eight or nine years ago. These are estimates, this paper estimates um, these emissions for a given year. I'm not giving you the estimates, I'm just showing you the uncertainties. These are the 95% confidence interval. So look at the primary PM 2.5 confidence interval. Primary PM 2.5 refers to the PM 2.5 that is not formed chemically in there, that is emitted as PM 2.5. You would think that'd be pretty easy to measure. It's not. You could be off by 50% on the, on, the, on the higher end and still be within your 95% um, confidence interval. So, and then on top of this, emission rates change over time by day, time of day, day of week, by seasons, and year to year as the economy changes. <clears throat> so that's all my complications. Um, I, I, there's more, but I, I, I'll, I'll keep it at that. Um, so the point is, China's PM 2.5 haze pollution should be understood as a messy complex of interrelated but distinct hazards, different across time, different across space, often hard to measure, and having a vast range of causal origins. It's basically an endlessly evolving target. So it should be no surprise that our knowledge is incomplete. We know enough to control some of China's PM 2.5, but we're still learning what some of it is and how it is formed, let alone how to control it. So you might say, uh, well, um, 
isn't it true though that China is making progress on its on its PM two point five? And that is true. It's impressive. Uh, these are results from a paper that was produced by some of our colleagues in CES that are not part of the China project. I won't explain it, but you can see for five different regions of China a downward trend in the in, in the in the ten day mean PM two point five. But remember what I said. I said we know enough to control some of China's PM two point five. But we're still trying to figure out what other, uh, what other uh, PM 2.5 is and how to control it. So let me show you another uh, uh, representation of this same trend. This is a different vertical scale, so it looks different. But the black line is showing this precipitous decline in PM 2.5 concentrations in China. It's very impressive. You can see it's, the, the decline is slowing down a little bit. This is in the last six years. But now recognize how far China has to go. The WHO air quality guideline is down there at the bottom. It's in green. Uh, the U.S. is in orange and the U.S. Uh, and, and Europe is in, in blue. It looks like China is going to just head straight down and, and, and meet those uh, ranges of, uh, of the guidelines in the, in, the, in the Western countries, but that's not true. If you were to talk to any atmospheric chemist working on this problem, what they will tell you and also the pollution control people, is that China has picked the low-hanging fruit. It has gone all out on, on fixing the problems or addressing the problems that are most obvious. And, um, and they've done that sometimes in brute force methods and at enormous expense. But they've done it, and it is laudable. It has really brought the PM 2.5 down. But now the hard work really starts. And you are not talking about solving this problem in another five years. You're talking about decades for China to get to um, these Western levels in the best case scenario. And now before I go on, I want to say, don't forget, there's a lot of other pollutants. And ozone, which is generally considered the second most important one for health impacts, um, is actually, it's, it's very complicated chemically, even more complicated than PM 2.5. It's going up all over China in, in recent years. Even as PM 2.5 is going down, ozone is going up. So the implication of all this for the public, for the media, for policy actors, and for social scientists is that trying to explain China's air pollution with political, institutional, and legal causes alone is simplistic. You have to take care not to abstract away the physical environmental part of China's environmental problems. This is not to say that uh, political and legal dimensions don't play major roles. I think most of us working on the science side would agree it's indisputable. I have a very interesting story if somebody wants to ask me about it in the Q&A of uh, the, the Director General of Air Pollution Control for the Ministry of Ecology and Environment. He's an alumnus of our project. He's a very good friend. <clears throat> and what he was telling me uh, in the last year about you know, what his um, constraints are in terms of legal methods compared to the U.S. Very interesting story. So uh, it's, this is hardly a surprise that there are these, uh, uh, you know, these causal factors, um, but you have to think of them as sort of necessary uh, explanatory causes, but also highly insufficient because the problems themselves are so complex. 
Okay, so now I want to ask, are you overwhelmed or maybe bored by all of this gory detail about PM 2.5? Um, that's not a surprise. In fact, that's kind of my point. Because now I want to ask you to take the complexity of China's PM 2.5 pollution that I just described and multiply it by, say, 100 or more. And that's what you have when you're thinking about climate change, at least notionally. And as I said, I'm going to end up talking about U.S.-Chinese relations. So, um, as a starting point, um, I'm, I'm trying to compare the complexity of climate change to what I've tried, I hope I've, I've communicated is the complexity of PM 2.5. Um, as a starting point, just think about the spatial scale of this problem. Air, uh, air pollution occurs in, you know, regions of continents uh, around cities. Um, the climate change is taking place over the entire planet. So that right there is you know, at least an order, an order of magnitude of, of complexity when you think about all the different environments on the planet. Secondly, I think, I think a lot of people think of the, as climate change is fundamentally an atmospheric problem. And it's true, it is driven by emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which then affects the radiative balance, the energy balance of the planet and leads to uh, climate change. But climate change is not just an atmospheric problem. It takes place in what is called, scientists call the, the, the whole earth system. So don't underestimate how important the oceans are to the climate, climate uh, process <clears throat> in all of their complexity. The, think, you should think of the oceans as these vast repositories of energy, of heat energy, in the planet and, and conduits for moving that heat energy around. You don't have monsoons, you don't have uh, El Nino and things like that, those climatic uh, uh, events without the interaction of the oceans and the atmosphere. And then think about how hard it is to understand what's actually going on in the ocean. It's got the same problem as the air pollution measuring, uh, the air pollution problem that I was talking about a minute ago. It's relatively easy to access the surface, but this is a very forbidding environment to try to measure what's going on. And there's some who have, I think, commented that we actually know more about near space than we know about what's going on in the depths of the oceans. On top of that, uh, climate change involves the entirety of the biosphere. So the biosphere refers to all living things, you know, and uh, organic carbon. We're all part of the carbon cycle. And, uh, and then a lot of people think, okay, well, it's, it's in terms of the forest. And, and you can see I have arrows there to the, for, to the, to the forest, uh, tropical forests in, in the Amazon and in the Congo Basin. But actually, it's everything. It includes all the phytoplankton in the, in, in the ocean. The phytoplankton is estimated to capture as much carbon per year as four Amazon rainforests. And it's the soils. A lot of people, you know, don't, don't, don't think so much about the soils. The soils are really important parts of the carbon cycle. Um, the, the, the organic carbon in the soils is equal to two and a half of the carbon in all living organisms, including all those trees. And then think about how many different types of soils there are. At least by one estimate, there's 300,000 types of soils that, um, you know, that are that have different kind of uh, uh, um, roles in the, in the carbon chemistry or other greenhouse gas chemistry. 
and they're each change, you know, they're changing differently as the climate changes. So again, this is an incredibly complex system that we're trying to understand here. And then on top of that, you have the cryosphere, which refers to the ice. Um, this affects the, the reflectivity of the, of the planet. It also, when you're talking about melting ice in Greenland and Antarctica, you're, you're, you're introducing fresh water into the oceans. It changes the chemistry of the oceans. It changes the dynamics of the ocean. This is an incredibly complicated system that we're trying to address. The lithosphere is the last element of the earth system and it refers to the rock part. So on top of all that complexity, um, and you can kind of imagine if we only know so much about PM 2.5, how much we know and don't know about climate, then you have to think about the stakes um, compared to say PM 2.5. Um, I'm just gonna go through this real quick. I think most of you know about it. Climate change affects all these fundamental inputs to life the entirety of the water cycle, a lot of the food production around the world, um, shelter, this is, a, this is a one way of representing that in, in sea level rise um, around, the, around the world, new estimates of how, how much sea level rise is gonna impact uh, uh, populated areas, weather, extreme weather events are increasing over time, and health in many different dimensions, for instance, the, 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 the injuries and fatalities associated with these extreme weather events. Um, heat stress, there's a lot of research coming out now that is, that is really mind boggling about how many hundreds of millions of people, young, healthy people are going to be um, undergoing potentially mortal stress with just a few temperatures, a, temp, a few degrees uh, Celsius temperature rise. This is referring to especially people that work outside, farmers, construction workers, and places like in, in especially in the tropics and places like India. And I'm just picking some of these. Um, and then you have this sort of vector distribution in ecology uh, for diseases. And on top of that, you have all these other knock-on effects, the economy, migration, national security, and, and, and so much more. This is more the province of folks in the, in the Fairbanks Center than it is for uh, me. So what I want to caution you uh, about is, is that climate change should not be thought of as a really, really, really big pollution problem. It is orders of magnitude larger in terms of its scale, in terms of its complexity, and in terms of what we don't know, what we still have to learn. So you're probably wondering, what does all this have to do with U.S.-China relations? So believe it or not, I want to apply the immortal words of Donald Rumsfeld to climate change. Um, I, I think I'll skip trying to uh, explain who Donald Rumsfeld was. Well, he was the defense secretary for uh, President George W. Bush, and he used this framing. He referred to the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown known unknowns. He used this framing famously in a press conference um, where he was basically trying to dodge a question about weapons of mass destruction. Doesn't matter. I want to apply it to climate change. So what would be the known knowns when it comes to climate change? Well, this is the scientific certainties. For instance, we know that fossil fuel CO2 emissions contribute to global warming. We know that. We've known that, you know, that was postulated more than 100 years ago, and we've known it um, for a good 50, 50 years, regardless of what the guy in the White House thinks. Uh, what would be a known unknown? That would be, for example, the uncertainties around those knowns. For instance, while we know that 
increasing CO2 will warm the planet. We actually only have a range in terms of what, how much we think it'll warm the planet. And um, it's like plus or minus 1.5 degrees Celsius um, <clears throat> under a doubling of CO2 emissions over pre-industrial levels. Uh, so what is an unknown unknown? Well, these are uh, all the surprises still to come in this vast complex system that we're trying to analyze. Um, and this should not be underestimated. Um, there's going to be inevitably huge surprises. And I can't give you an example of one because if I could, it wouldn't be an unknown unknown. It would be a known unknown. So um, how the knowns about climate change relate to U.S.-Chinese relations is really, really urgent and important. I'm going to um, I'm going to have one slide on it, though, as important as it is. And the reason I'm only going to have one slide on it is that I think a lot of people are thinking about that. Um, and uh, um, I, I want to focus on this part, the unknowns, how the unknowns relate to U.S.-Chinese relations. Um, because I don't know of anybody who's really thinking about this. And I want to put it on the table. I want to hear what you guys have to, think, have to say about this. So. My one slide on, on acting on the knowns, it is very urgent to act aggressively on the knowns of climate change. That means to reduce the emissions of CO2 and, and other greenhouse gases and to prepare to adapt to the impacts of climate change. We know that's coming, we can act on that. And we have an, internet, uh, an agreed international framework for this. It's the UN framework on climate change and the Paris Agreement, which is part of the UN framework uh, convention on climate change. I would say, uh, personally, I would say that U.S.-China coordination is arguably essential for further UNFCCC process. Why is that true? Because um, they're the two 800-pound gorillas. They're the two 800-pound gorillas in terms of emissions, uh, in terms of their economies, in terms of their technological capacities, in terms of their political influence. And we have the, the experience of uh, we, we know it's possible because the U.S. and China actually did coordinate, as I'm sure a lot of you know, in making joint announcement of domestic commitments by, by, by Chairman Xi and, 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 and President Obama uh, uh, that provided the, the breakthrough that led to the Paris Agreement. So, as I said, I think this is a really, really important, important part of the story. I could have tried to put together a talk that was just about this, but I want instead to focus, uh, to raise this other issue that I think I, I don't hear anybody really thinking or talking about, and that's acting on the unknowns of climate change, which I think is just as important because the problem is so complex, we know less than we generally admit, and the stakes are so high. So what does it mean to act urgently on the unknowns? It means research. <laughs> And um, climate research is getting ever more dependent on international collaborations. I would argue that the social, political, economic, humanistic research dimensions are almost surely as important as the scientific part. I know this is kind of a throwaway point, but I, I, I really do believe that. Um, I, I just am not in a position to um, you know, say a lot, a lot more about it. 
how does climate research relate to U.S.-Chinese relations? Well, if you agree that global advances on, uh, uh, in research on climate change are vital and urgent, it's an all-hands-on-deck time. Um, we need to pool resources financially and intellectually. So to uh, explore this a little bit, I'm going to invoke this uh, database that the, the journal Nature um, produces uh, that measures collaboration. It's a metric of collaboration between countries. And basically what they have is a, is a, is a list of leading journals, top journals in re uh, related areas. This is specifically for um, earth and environmental sciences. Um, and they, they, they look at the papers that are published with authors from different countries and they use that as a metric of collaboration. And so if you drill down on this uh, and click on the big red dot in the middle, which is the United States, you will see that in, uh, in the earth and environmental sciences, it is the number one collaborating country in the world and its number one collaborating partner is China. If you click on China in the previous figure, you will see that it is number two in uh, earth and environmental science collaborations in the world, and its number one collaborator is the United States. So what I wanna say is, you know, with this vexing complex challenge of climate change, the world critically needs collaboration of the two research behemoths on climate, the US and China. And US-China disengagement in STEM fields, um, which is something that uh, a lot of people are sort of talking about in some political circles would absolutely be a scientific disaster. I can say that um, a number of professors that I know at Harvard, my, probably about five, who are not involved in the China project, but do work in this area, are really, really concerned. They've mentioned this to me. They're really, really concerned that there's gonna be impediments on their ability to attract Chinese researchers into their groups. Um, and they're not thinking about it in political terms. Um, they just, they wanna recruit the best talent. Um, and they're, 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 they're seriously nervous about this. And also for their collaborations with Chinese partners. A lot of, if you go, you go around the Harvard Sciences, there's people collaborating with Chinese institutions all over the place. So I do have a story here about uh, what, is, what kind of research is, is, involves intellectual property and doesn't involve intellectual property. But I think I'm going to skip that for the Q&A in case somebody wants to raise it. Um, it's not as big of a problem in what I'm, what I'm talking about as you, as you might think. So uh, I'm almost done here. My, a few final thoughts. Um, I want to ask you to think about all of the institutions in the world that have something to contribute to the challenge of US-China uh, research collaboration on climate change. So think of all the uh, uh, you know, government research institutes, all the national labs, all the universities, um, all the think tanks, all the private sector organizations that do research and rank them in terms of their capacities to contribute to this to this challenge. I think it's very hard. I know I'm going to sound like a hometown booster here, but I think it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that Harvard is very, very, very high on that list. 
and not just because of its strengths in, um, you know, in climate-related sciences, clean energy sciences, and so forth at places like the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences or Earth and Planetary Sciences or whatever, but because of its strengths, its comprehensive strengths in environmental health at the School of Public Health and at the medical school, uh, its strengths in policy at the Kennedy School, its strengths at the law school, its strengths across the whole spectrum of fields that have some relevance to climate change in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Um, and, and, and critically, Harvard's incredible strengths on in the study of China, <laughs> led by the Fairbanks Center, um, which would be really important in helping to envision how a constructive relationship between these two countries in the midst of all their other tensions and, and interests um, could be forged to act both on what we know and what we don't know uh, about climate change. So I do have one uh, set of data that kind of supports this uh, somewhat. It's again from Nature Index. And so you can also find which institutions within any of these countries are contributing, especially to collaboration. And as you can see, Harvard University is number one. This is just for the sciences. I don't have something comparable for, this, for the social sciences. So from the university standpoint, um, I also wanna say, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better intellectual theme for the future that leverages all the strengths of the, of the, of the university um, and integrates two of the most transformative developments uh, of our time, and that is climate change and the rise of China and the U.S. accommodation of, of China's power. So I know I can sound a little earnest and passionate about this kind of stuff, but uh, I can't help but think that this is, at least in some part, uh, you know, our task. So that's it. Thank you. Yeah, it was a wonderful presentation, and it's, uh, oh, I've been at this for a long time. I can't think of a more comprehensive presentation of the issues involved in issues like climate change. Uh, those of us who concentrate on U.S.-China relations, of course, are terribly worried about what's happening now. A lot of people in Washington who are dumping on the Chinese in every kind of area say, but there are some places we need to cooperate with the China. One is climate change. Uh, but they are creating an atmosphere where that is getting to be more difficult. Those of us who work on U.S.-China relations are going to do everything we can to improve relations and hope that next year things will be somewhat better. But have you noticed that the current mood of uh, all kinds of people dumping on China from Washington and the public opinion uh, that's coming from the United States, has that already begun to make it more difficult for you to continue your collaboration with Chinese? Or is it holding up pretty well? And are you optimistic that that can continue? If you're asking about the reaction in China, um, I would say so far we haven't had, uh, we haven't had any significant problems. Um, I think people are conscious of the fact that there's, uh, there's sort of a growing kind of uh, uh, anti-China sentiment in the U.S., but 
Yeah, I, I, I would say we, we haven't had any specific impacts on our uh, on our research. In fact, it's it's kind of interesting. In some sense, we we even are um, in a position um, to take advantage of this because of what you said at the beginning of your question that climate change is seen as an area in which cooperation is um, seen, you know it's seen as a potentially positive area between the two countries. And so you know we're involved in developing proposals with uh, institutes in China that, um, that there's at least some sense that people recognize this is an area where collaboration really does need to uh, continue. So also on the U.S. side, I, 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 you know, I haven't, uh, I can't say that we have personally been infected, affected, although this, this scrutiny, well, I do have to say the scrutiny of the uh, intellectual property related uh, research areas has, you know, been redounding all around the university and the sciences. I, I'm very frustrated, very frustrated by the fact that a lot of people, including some folks in Washington, like Tom, Senator Tom Cotton and maybe some others who have been commenting on this, they seem to sort of assume that all research in STEM fields has to do with um, either national security interests or intellectual property. And that's just not, this is not true. I mean, that's a, that, that, those, those are important issues, but um, I, I personally sort of agree that the U.S. needs to be careful about that, more careful, but, um, but so much of science has nothing to do with intellectual property. Our program has never developed any <laughs> technology that we tried to patent um, in 20, whatever it is, six years, you know. Um, and so much of uh, so much of science is really about transparency. You know, um, there's not a there's not an intellectual property theft issue there in a, in, a, in a lot of science. You have to publish your results. You have to put your data up. Um, so, but I, I'm worried. I'm really worried about the political tenor. And I'm not. I have to say, I don't want to go on here too much, but I'm a little bit concerned about how. Um, Vice President Biden is talking about China because he's also being, I think he's trying to be very critical. He said some things about China's actions on climate change that are just false and uh, that sort of demonize China. I think a lot of us hope that uh, after the election, when uh, the political candidates are less concerned about getting support for the anti-Beijing attitudes, that that may begin to ease and that the new president thinking uh, he has to survive four years uh, recognizes that there are a lot of issues that a country as big as China and as influential in so many areas uh, requires the cooperation of the United States. That's our hope. Yeah. uh, I'm relieved to hear that so far you haven't had any uh, problem in working with your Chinese collaborators, which I think says a lot about the trust and hard work that you and they have engaged in uh, over more than two decades. I think we're so fortunate to have this wonderful uh, presentation. And uh, how long is it going to take us to get this up on the web, uh, Nick or Mark? How long uh, will we expect this to take? Um, go ahead, Nick. Or would you like me to? I think the audio version will be up, should be up in just a day or two. It's much easier. Um, 
the video version will take a little longer. We need to edit it and we need to add closed captioning for universal access. So that will probably take a week or longer, but there will be an audio one put up, I would say in a day or two, and we can ask for that to be expedited. I think today is a wonderful example of how a lecture here uh, can uh, fulfill needs of a much wider audience than just the Harvard audience. And the fact that we are, have access to Zoom, I think is really just marvelous. Hey, uh, Ezra, originally, yeah? Ezra, I want to say one thing before you go. I, I, go, go ahead, though. Okay, what I want to say is that um, uh, you know, our original plan was to start uh, lectures up in the fall again. Mm. And uh, whether we have uh, assemblies and people can get together here or not, we're going to have the Zoom. And we've already started that. But now that uh, this series is proven so popular to people outside of Harvard, uh, we might consider starting even sooner. But uh, in the past, we've always done it in the school year when people are around here uh, starting in September. So we're already scheduling for September. We'll certainly be back then. But uh, I, I would be willing to consider setting up sessions even in August if there's a demand now that we have Zoom and don't require a local assemblies. And now back to Chris. Yeah, I can't, I don't know if I actually put my thank you slide up. I think I did. I just want to, I just want to point to the thing at the bottom. Um, I'm actually interested in talking to uh, people about uh, what I presented today. And I would encourage uh, folks to uh, contact me. Uh, if we were, if we were, the campus were open, I'd be suggesting we go get coffee, but we can't do that. But you can uh, email me and I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear from you, including, including students. Uh, um, I'd love to chat with you about this uh, stuff. Thank you. And thank you, Ezra. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, coming to present us. And uh, we'll see you in September, if not sooner. So, um, uh, Nick or Mark, do you have any final words? Or Bill, any final words to end our series this spring? I was just going to add quickly that um, the critical issues is ending for the semester, but the Fairbanks Center will continue uh, with at least one or two more events. So uh, look for them on our website and our weekly email. Um, we are going to continue past the end of the semester to have at least a couple of events. And now I'll leave it to Bill. Well, thank you again, Chris. Thanks. Terrific presentation. Thank you, Chris. So see you all in the fall. <laughs>